The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. So this morning I want to continue with these practice slogans of the Indian, 11th century Indian master Atisha. I want to say something. Uh, well, so these are phrases by this Indian master that we've been studying during this training period and that are given as meditations and as teachings that the student takes up one by one. There are 59 of them and reflects on them, contemplates them, and then puts them into their practice. And so they're intended to be engaged one by one in this way and incorporated, integrated into one's practice. And so each one is guiding us in particular ways. And we're concluding an introductory retreat this weekend. Some of you are here just this morning for the first time. And so one of the things to bear in mind about the teachings is there are many teachings about various forms of practice that make it clear that there is a kind of gradual process of beginning and taking up that practice in a beginning way and then how it evolves as one matures. But there are teachings that very often are presented sort of in a, in a fully embodied form. And it's as though they're being presented to a student who is already fully involved in the Buddha Dharma, committed to it, dedicated to practicing, is sort of very clear on that. And these teachings today are like that as well. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that in terms of those of you who are here and maybe just sort of sorting things out, you know, exploring Buddhism, Buddhist teachings and practice as to whether it's your path or something you want to engage in on some level, incorporate into your life in some way, or in a much fuller way, you know, really making it your, your practice tradition. And so wherever we find ourselves, we hear the teaching from that place, because that's, that's the place where we are. And that's what, in a sense, we can hear, that we're able to hear in the teaching. And then naturally, you sort of filter that through your own level of clarity or questioning about where do you find yourself in terms of the Buddhist teachings and practice. So with that sort of prelude, <laughs> so this, the first, I want to touch on three slogans this morning. This one is training the three difficulties. And the first of the three difficulties that Atisha says we should train in is recognizing conflicting emotions. So Buddhism teaches that all that we struggle with and all that is at the basis of our um, creating dukkha, suffering, and all of its manifestations, is in a, in a way we can think of as being in a state of bewilderment. We are born into this world, we're taught you know, about what the world is, how to get things done, we develop skills, we educate ourselves, we, you know, we learn how to function in a functional way. And yet within all of that, we can be in a basic state of bewilderment about all of it. 
about who we are, about what life is, about what's going on in the world, about what we are to do about it. Is this all there is? And that state of bewilderment, of just not really understanding things and our place in them. And then along with that is the ongoing experience we have of very strong emotions. We're emotional beings. We have thoughts, we have sensations, we have energy, we have, you know, there are always kinds of ways we can talk about ourselves. We have a physical aspect, a mental aspect, a psychological aspect, but we're just one thing. We can talk about ourselves in these different ways or point to different aspects of ourselves, but we're just one whole integrated being. And so these emotions that we have, these affective experiences that can flood the whole body and can be very strong, they can be very high and exhilarating, they can be very strong and, and drag us down. They can overwhelm us. And so Buddhism teaches that it's those two basic aspects that are sort of at the heart of our confused experience and reaction and response to things. And so recognizing conflicting emotions, and of course they're very related, right? they're very much intertwined. Judy Leaf, one of the uh, contemporary teacher in uh, the Shambhala tradition, um, who we've been working with her commentaries on this, says, mind training is a way to uncover and develop confidence in our own inherent goodness, our Buddha nature, and that of all beings. It's a way to cultivate loving kindness. You might say, that's the good news. But the way to go about this is by going directly into the dark side, or what is difficult, to what prevents this awakened aspect from manifesting. If we all have Buddha nature, then what's keeping it from manifesting? And this is not an easy task. You could say, that's the bad news. <laughs> this slogan is about facing difficulties. It's nice to bask in moments of inspiration or calmness, altruism. It's inspiring and gives us hope, and it's true. But it's hard to stay with our obstacles, blockages, and neuroses long enough to know how to deal with them. It's too embarrassing and disheartening, so we bounce away, pretending it isn't so, or just hope for the best. So what she's talking about here, these conflicting emotions, are we refer to as clashes. So when we talk about the three poisons, kleshas are emotional states that are developed <clears throat> through the repetitious experiences that we have hundreds, thousands, millions of times in a lifetime. And in traditional Buddhism, well, in Buddhism, um, it teaches that um, there is rebirth, that, um, which is not the self, but consciousness, um, moves from one lifetime to the next because it has no beginning or end and carries with it the imprints, the impressions of the karma of past lives. And so when we are born into this life and seem to have, in a fairly short amount of time, develop a fairly significant amount of blockages and obstacles and neuroses, <laughs> one way of understanding that is it didn't just start in this life. But however you you see that, we see that they're significant. And so the kleshas are these deepest and sort of central emotional states that we experience that are primarily responsible for our 
the, the strong emotions that overwhelm us, that we react to, that we react out of, and that creates a lot of trouble in the world. And so greed and all of its cousins, right, of just grasping a desire, aversion, and all of its families of different ways of, of denying, ignoring, hating, anger, and ignorance or delusion, which is sometimes manifests as a state of indifference, apathy. Pride and jealousy are also included in this cluster, sometimes other qualities. But these are the main emotional states of kleshas that basically arise, and we know, you know, when we react to something, something happens and there's a reaction in that moment that you didn't ask for. You didn't say, okay, now I'm going to get angry because you said this. We're just angry. And it seems to happen in an instant. And it seems to happen because of what somebody else did. It's as though they made me angry. And that's part of what we need to see through is that that's not what's happening. Something was did happen. Something was said. But I am experiencing the anger within myself. The anger is arising in me. You can't make that happen in me. And so we need to, Buddhism says, we need to really begin to examine and learn how to work with these emotions. Because otherwise they will just continue to overwhelm us. And so a question is, well, what is it so difficult about the emotion? Why do they overwhelm us? What is an actual emotion? Anger is just a word we give to something that we experience, a state that we experience in a particular way. What is the meaning that we give to the emotion? How significant is that in terms of the power that the emotion has? Because when we have an emotion that arises in a moment, we generally do not just experience the moment. The emotion, oftentimes we hardly experience it at all. We experience it at a distance. Someone is angry but we're not really in contact with it. And the mind begins to proliferate in that moment and about the reason for that. Where did it come from? Who's making this happen? Which then directs us to how to get, make it stop, which is why anger is so often outwardly directed, which distracts us from the actual, the heart of the matter, which is the emotion itself. Treleg Kyabgan said, the sheer force of our negative emotions makes it difficult to even identify them, to even know what's going on. So we just get swept along without really recognizing what has taken place. And one of the essential things that Buddhism teaches is that everything that we experience is dependently arisen. It's not just happening autonomously, independently, in and of itself. The Garjana said, all that is dependently origination arising is realized to be empty because it's empty of that autonomy. It's empty of existing by itself. Being dependently arising, Nagarjuna said, it is the middle way because there is nothing that we can see and experience that is not dependently arisen. There is nothing that is not empty. There is not anything that is not empty of any inherent, intrinsic characteristic or quality, which means nothing is fixed, which means in a way everything is always workable because it's always in a state of change. 
but we have to learn how to direct our attention skillfully so that we begin to see that, because that's ultimately what's transformative. We can have lots of strategies of how to work with anger, and those can be very helpful. But how do we get to the root? Paltrow Rinpoche said, don't follow after the object of your anger. Rather, look at your angry mind. Don't chase after the object of your pride. Rather, look at the grasping mind. Don't hanker after the object of your desires, but look at the craving mind. Don't just take for granted ideas forged by delusion, but look at the nature of delusion itself. So in each of these, they're really taking us, trying to direct our attention to the, to the fundamental source of what's going on. And the difficulty with these strong emotions is that they, again, distract us in a way towards the object that seems to be at the heart of the emotion. If it's greed, it's what I want. If it's anger, it's who made me or what made me anger. Rather than the mind of greed, the mind of anger. Because the whole intention and purpose of Buddhism is to liberate that mind. And so, when we really think about this, when I think about this, <laughs> it's like Zazen becomes, in a sense, the only the, the, the thing that must be done. <laughs> right? Because how else are we going to examine, be able to, to see, to have enough space and time and quietness and lack of anything else going on so that we can actually have that ability to begin to stop and look? And that becomes more possible when we become interested in doing that. Right? That's why we have to bring ourselves into practice. You can't make somebody do Zazen. You can't make somebody study their mind. You can't make somebody let's let go of something. You can force somebody to sit on a cushion, but you can't make them do Zazen. We have to bring ourselves into it at every step along the way. And so we have to want to see what is actually present rather than our, just rely on our projections of what's happening. We have to want, to want to work towards freeing ourselves of these impulsive tendencies rather than just trying to vindicate ourselves of responsibility or blame it on somebody else. We have to want to be a true person as Linji said, a true person of no rank, rather than an idea of a person. Our idea, somebody else's idea. And so we have to recognize these emotions. And then the second part is we have to skillfully practice, practice them. Pema Chodron says, don't do the habitual thing. <laughs> that the habitual thing is what happens when you don't think, when you're not aware. That's the habitual thing. She says, don't do the habitual thing. Do something skillful that interrupts that habit. And of course, this is easier said than done, as is most things. <laughs> and so in order to interrupt that habitual thing, which happens without thought and in an instant, we have to develop some capacity of awareness, mindfulness. We have to develop a kind of a ground from which we can actually see. I mean, how many times do we find ourselves swept away in something, and at some point as we're headed downstream, we realize, oh, I'm going downstream. 
you know, working with our karma, which is the intentional actions that we have committed and, be, and have been committed to over this lifetime, and then the consequences, the fruits of that, they keep arising, that that is integral to these clashes, right? Because it's through the repetition that they get strong and stronger and stronger and stronger. That's why every time when a strong emotion arises, in Buddhism, that's, I mean, in normal life, that's considered, you know, a bummer, right? In Buddhism, it's considered propitious. Oh, this is your moment. Because this is the moment when that karma, when you cannot do the habitual thing, you can do something else. When you can shift that karma. Because now it's arisen. Now the fruit has, 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 has been born, right? And so in the moment that we act on that, we're either creating more habit, strengthening that habit, or we're going another way, as Pam Chodron encourages. It said, if you meet a mountain that won't yield, then you have to yield. And when we yield, the mountain is no longer an obstacle. It's not the same thing anymore. And if we can't yield, if we can't yet yield, then just don't turn away. Then just stand at the foot of that mountain for a bit. That's not doing the habitual thing. That's uh, interrupting the habit of turning away. The Buddha said it this way, don't deny and don't cling. I mean, the simple fact is that if we want to go a different way, we have to go a different way. Now is a good time. The third aspect of this is calming, dissolving, transforming, liberating those very emotions. Because they're not fixed, they both carry the power, in a sense, of our further entanglement when we respond in the same way. And so another slogan was, don't be predictable. Right? But in the same, for the very same reason, they also hold our, our transformation, our liberation, because they're not fixed. And so when we experience them, respond to them, ultimately realize them and their true nature as being empty, as Nagarjuna said, then in that moment, not only have we liberated the emotion, but the emotion has liberated us. Pema Chodron says, make this practice a way of life. Do all activities, one slogan was, do all activities with one intention. <clears throat> to make this practice a way of life. Now that can sound a little overwhelming, right? To make it your way of life, does that mean you have to, you know, shave your head, leave home, quit your job? <laughs> or we might say, what have we been making our way of life up till now? What has been the basic purpose, intention, thing about all this? So what is she saying? We should make this practice a way of life. We could think of it as a Buddhist practice, the practice of these slogans. We could think of it as a practice of, of awareness, of questioning, of examining, of taking responsibility. When we cultivate our mindfulness, we learn how to recognize and meet skillfully these strong emotions, our bewilderment, 
and it begins to shift and transform and calm when we develop patience and forbearance and resilience. All of those really essential qualities help us to not turn away, to not fly away, to not get overwhelmed, to not be governed by these emotions. You know, I think we all want to think that we're in charge of ourselves. You know, I'm in charge of my life, making my own choices, directing the course of my life, and yet how often are we really at the mercy, the beck and call of these strong emotions? Or just the confusion of our mind. Treleg says, our emotions seem so overpowering when we don't see them properly. And that's the thing. The less clearly we see them, the more powerful they appear. But we find that they have no real substance when we examine them in our meditation. They're fleeting, rising and falling beyond our reach. It's only when we really try to grasp them in meditation that we realize how impossible they are to grasp. We're beginning to see what Nagarjan is saying. All things that are dependently arisen are empty. All things are dependently arisen, therefore all things are empty. When we try and find their solidity, their substance, the stuff of that emotion that is overwhelming us, what we feel, the power of it, the heat of it, the lust of it, right? It doesn't feel like an idea. It feels like a visceral experience that's in the body, right? It feels very real, very solid. But what Trader Calgon is saying is, okay, yes. Now turn your attention in your meditation and find that solidity. Can you find it? It, we've, it, we, it seems to be like a mountain. It seems to be something implacable. We can't just drop it off. But when we try and find that solidity, what do we find? And then sort of as a natural progression from this, the next slogan is to take on the three principal causes. So what do we need? What will help us to do these things? And by recognizing and practicing and ultimately realizing our conflicting emotions. We can't separate our emotions from our thoughts. We can't separate the mental from the physical, from the emotional, from the psychological. So really when we're turning our attention to, the, to our emotion or an emotion is calling to us, we're really turning our attention to the whole thing. We tend to experience that emotion as an emotion. That's, what, that's how we have learned to understand it and call it and relate to it. But if we look carefully, we realize everybody's involved. <laughs> right? The whole village is there. It's not just some you know, isolated thing that's happening in our emotion. The whole system that we call ourselves is involved. And so then how do we, which means we're practicing the whole thing. And so what that means is that when we attend to one emotion that's arisen, one thought, you're, you're attending to that particular emotion, particular qualities of that emotion, that anger, that greed, that pride, for instance, and also the, the place it has in your life, right? Because we have different sort of karmic 
streams with these different kleshas. So for anger, that might be a big raging river for you. For other people, it's a stream. Everybody's got a stream for each of these kleshas. But for some people, it's sort of the, a major theme. For others, it might be less. Maybe it's not a major theme for you. Maybe you've got, maybe you, you like to dwell in another river. But they're all there. So when we, when we address and really begin to uh, practice well, one thing, we're really developing the capacity to practice all things. Because it's the same principle. And we're, we're addressing the, the encumbrance, the confinement, the delusion, the suffering of this whole thing. Nothing is isolatable. So take on the three principles is the next one. And so the first of these is the three principal causes, in fact. And we might say of a healthy, vibrant, strong, transformative practice. The first is the teacher, the spiritual friend. And I'm, in a way, put very simply, we need help. We need help. And to understand that, that we, all have, we all are in full possession of Buddha nature. And in many ways, we've done, we've already sort of taken care of all the hard stuff. <laughs> We're here. Something has stirred within us. We are seeking something. We have found our way to one place in which the Dharma is being taught in practice, whether it's our place or not. We have all, all of that has happened. Buddhism says that's actually really difficult to get all that to come together. Now we just have to bring it together. And so one aspect of that is the teacher, because we need help. Every student needs a teacher. Every teacher has teachers forever. We continue to study. The moment we continue to study, I don't know, something else is going on. We need to, to have guidance, to be pointed, to have reflected things reflected back to us, to be encouraged, to be challenged. The lion's share of this, of course, we have to do ourselves. But if we're only trusting our mind, that's going to be a rather precarious journey. Right? How do you know if when you have a sense of something, you're experiencing something in your zazen, you have an intuition. Is that intuition? Is that wisdom's coming out? Or is it just a habit? Is it just a habitual thought? How do we know when we're trying to cultivate selflessness in our practice of the precepts of compassion, whether there's self-clinging, self-grasping? Every step along the way that we take is brand new. And so it helps to have people who've walked ahead. We have to learn how to trust ourselves. And part of that is learning within ourselves what do we actually trust and what don't we trust. <laughs> what thoughts, what impulses, what intuitions, to call them that, are trustworthy and should be followed, and which ones shouldn't be followed. It's not always clear. Judy Leaf says, you may have heard about the Dharma through a book or a magazine or a video or from a friend, even from an ad. But no matter the medium, if you trace it back, these teachings come from real, live human beings. Beginning with the Buddha, 
Without the hard work and sacrifices of many generations of practitioners and teachers, you would have never heard about this. None of us would. Or the very possibility of practice or a path. That's really the gift that we've received. That in every generation, people have done what we are doing. And in choosing to be here now, some of us are here now all the time. That's the choice that we've made. But for most of you, you've made the choice to be here. You're not somewhere else. You've made the choice to be with us. You're not with other people. You're with us here. You've made choices, right? And so in those choices, we because we can't be everywhere at once, we can't do everything. Sometimes there are sacrifices that we make. To put energy into this means I'm not going to put energy into that or less energy into this. We do that all the time, right? But this is conscious, right? And it may or may not be valued by those in your circle. That's how this has happened. That's how it's happening. And so she's saying, Let's notice that. To trust in the teacher, to trust in ourselves. And so we're encouraged to be open and vulnerable and honest, but never abdicating your own mind, your own common sense, your own basic sense of what is right and wrong. The student has a very, I mean, the teacher has a very important responsibility. The student has an important responsibility, too. And in a sense, that means both on both aspects, as student and teacher, we both all need to understand the purpose of training. Why are we here? If we're sitting before a teacher, what is that, what is that about? Right? And that the boundaries that are necessary so that we can actually have that trust, have that faith, understand what this is about and how to use it. And then spiritual instructions to be able to hear the teachings, reflect upon them, put them into, into practice. Training is and practice is, is to bring us into deeper and deeper, more intimate contact with the teachings. I said to somebody this morning that when we chant the Heart Sutra, you know, in, initially those are the words of the Buddha. It's a sutra. But eventually, we do that practice, so eventually it's like, no, it's not the Buddha's words. It's your words. It's your report of how things are, of what reality is. It's your experience of Prajnaparamita. You know, we all experience moments where we, for practitioners, where we've chanted something or heard a teaching, we've heard it before, we've chanted it before, but in this moment, you hear it. In this moment, it goes deep. Why? Same words. Evidently, they're not the same. Where is that shift? Where is that transformation? It's like we're a piece of fruit that is constantly trying to become more and more ripe. Pema says, to cultivate a mind that turns towards awakening. You know, we consider the table of the most sumptuous meal you could ever imagine. And delight in how beautiful it is. 
the colors and the textures and the aromas. You could study the ingredients. You could learn. You could go to cooking school and learn how to make that meal. You could become quite expert. You could create a podcast. <laughs> right? Your own YouTube channel. You could make money from it. And all the while, be, be growing hungrier and hungrier and hungrier because you're not actually eating the meal. We have to actually put it into our mouth. We have to chew. We have to swallow. And we have to take more than one bite. <laughs> and the third is to have a supportive environment. This is really important. You know, in a way, not in a way, I mean, in fact, we are training to be able to, to practice, to be awake and aware and compassionate in every and any situation, no matter how difficult. Along the way, it's really helpful to have supportive, conducive environments. That's exactly what this is. Right? A monastery is built to create a conducive and supportive environment in which to practice, which means to do something that is already going to be difficult. And to make a conducive, a conducive environment in which to do that thing so that then we can more and more venture out into situations that aren't so easy. And then the last slogan is to pay heed that these three never wane, right? In other words, that we maintain these kinds of awarenesses, these practices, these relationships with a teacher. And Trelik says something interesting about the teacher. He says that in studying with a teacher, between the teacher and the student, that there needs to be both intimacy and space. Intimacy in the sense of that trust, that honesty, that openness, that when we become vulnerable, we open ourselves up, right? So that we can hear, something can enter, but we also open ourselves up to ourselves. And the space means that there is a sense of teacher and student boundary, that the, we can speak of the teacher as a spiritual friend, but that's a particular kind of friend. And the space means taking responsibility for our own practice, our own emotions, our choices, our actions, and the consequences of them. And so to have gratitude to our teachers, because without them, we can't be here. And to appreciate the teachings that we have encountered this path, right? that we have the basic assembly of things necessary to be able to do that. We might be able to improve on that somewhat, create a more conducive environment. I've said sometimes, you know, I, people talk about how difficult it is to practice, and when they describe what their lives are like, it's, yeah, it's like, yeah, no wonder. Sometimes people don't have choices about the sort of constellation of their lives. Not so many choices, and so then it's just accepting and doing the best we can with it. But some, oftentimes we do have some choices, and sometimes people are make choices that just make their practice really tough. That's a choice. Judy says, we can be grateful that we have been given a practical and effective way to work with the mind and emotions and cultivate wisdom and kindness. It's good to know that loving kindness is not something that we either have or don't, but something that we can actually cultivate. Amen to that. <laughs> and then the third aspect is commitment to the path. Oh. 
that part. <laughs> commitment. It's scary for a lot of folks, commitment, right? It can very easily sound like bondage, you know, like a sentence. Okay, you're committed now to the path, right? It's all given freely. It has to be, right? And commitment is, in a way, binding ourselves to something essential. We make commitments to those things that are most important. In a sense, we make commitments so we don't forget. We make commitments because we will forget. And in those moments, that commitment calls to us, if it's real, and calls us back. Hey, wait a minute. You made a pledge here. You're talking to yourself here. I made a pledge here. Yeah, but right now, this looks really good. Commitment doesn't look so good. (laughs) Okay, dig a little deeper. That's why when people come to be in residence, to be a student, to be a monastic, there's a lot of probing. Why? Why bother? Why go to all this trouble? Just go home, kick back, forget about all of it. Can you? Judy Leaf talks about this in terms of discipline, which is also can be a very tricky word because it can sound like being disciplined in a kind of harsh, punitive way. That's never been what it means to me. What it means to me is there's something that is that important I make a commitment to. How do I follow through? How do I live it? Today, and then the next today, and then the next today. How do I live that when I don't want to? (laughs) How do I follow through when I'm not sure what the next step is? We're pretty creative. We're pretty ingenious when it comes to necessity. When something is needed, we find something that we can put to use. We can think of it as being faithful, being faithful to ourselves. That's why we shouldn't make commitments recklessly or casually. Because if we're really making a commitment, which is like a vow, something, as Dogen says, something is realigning itself within us so that that can happen, so that we can actually stay in that, with that. We will be tested. It's guaranteed. If you're not, it hasn't been tested, are you practicing, I would say. If you've never had a stormy day, if you've never been out in the desert with no water to be found, this is a known thing. And it can happen really at any point along the way. It can happen on the first day. It can happen at any point. It can happen after years, right? Because nothing is fixed. It happens differently. How we experience it, how we respond to it, that should be changing. And so commitment. And in this hall, that commitment means not just to my practice, it means to you. That my commitment to my practice is my commitment to you about how I want to be in this world, which is your world. And that makes it so much larger, so much more compelling. Because what I might be willing to do to myself, I don't want to do to you. Whatever laziness or complacency I might find a moment of self-satisfaction with, if I, if I, 
consider that with relationship to you. That is not okay. And so again, to circle back to what I said at the beginning, wherever we are, right, and we have to start at the beginning. And in the beginning, you know, a lot of this that these teachings are speak, being spoken about, that I'm speaking about, may not be there, or maybe they're in nascent forms, you know. Something is there, but it's very small, it's very dim, it's like a dimly lit candle. But it's burning. And so to not be intimidated by this, by this, but rather, if there's any resonance, to be encouraged by it. And so I encourage you and all of us to know that we are alive, to know that that doesn't last forever, and that every day we have influence. We are changing the world, small ways, many ways we might not even be aware of. But not having influence is not really an option. (laughs) So then, what will it be? So I'll end with a poem. To ascend the great mountain requires just one action. Take a step. Now, having taken a step, allow the mountain to show you the way of 10,000 dancing forms of just this. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.